Hey, welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton. And this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Later on, we're going to feature an interview from BIV's Roundhouse Radio Show. It features Les Trachtman. He's the CEO at the Trachtman Group and the author of this book. And you know what? The title really says it all. Don't F it up, how founders and their successors can avoid the cliches that inhibit growth. Any examples come to mind, Tyler, of maybe that transition not going so smoothly? Uh, yeah, when I did not self-censor um, the name of the book, that was uh, a very difficult <laughs> thing that I went through. I I am self-censoring only because, you know, I, I like our tech guy and that causes a lot of work for him, <laughs> I think. Fair enough. Yeah. If we're repeating the name over and over, but essentially he's talking about you know, if you have a founding CEO passing on the reins of a company and likely a very successful company to his or her successor, you know, there's some pitfalls that happen. You can look to, say, former Uber CEO Travis Kalanick being ousted from the company. That's quite a controversial uh, one. No one wants that job. No I, I'm one just, wants that job. No, I'm just saying that, Haley. That's that's going to be a very difficult transition if they can make it happen. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with that. And there's a lawsuit well, pending, too. Yeah. It's uh, it's complicated. Les weighs in on that, actually, and he, he puts it quite politely. He maybe self-censors a bit and says, Uber's situation is unique, which I think is uh, okay. that's he, one he way did, to put he it. He didn't want to co-opt part of the title of his book uh, for describing <laughs> no. Uber's situation? He, he's also, he kind of likes our tech guy, too, I guess, saving him a lot of ah, editing. Okay, fair enough. There you go. Everyone likes Albert. <laughs> so, you know, Haley, I, I've been gone the last few weeks off enjoying uh, the beautiful summer mm-hmm. weather. I, so I, I, you're going to fill me in on what's going on. Maybe I can be somewhat used to you uh, here just commenting on it. But I'm sure there's lots of like cool things going on in the last week or so. There is tons going on. And of course, coming up this week, will be the formal start to the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement. We have been talking about this for months and months. There's been a lot of anticipation, rhetoric, and political sparring around this one. It finally begins. And you know what? From Canada's side of things, it sort of started today. We had our Foreign Affairs Minister, Christian Freeland, weighing in on what Canada's priorities are going to be. Some of these include seeking exemption from Buy American policies at the state and federal levels in the states, particularly around infrastructure or procurement programs. Canada is also very keen on keeping Chapter 19, which oversees the dispute resolution mechanism. And of course, from Canada's side of things, you can maybe see why they want it. They've had a lot of success, say, seeing their side of things heard when it comes to the softwood lumber dispute, for example. So that's what Chapter 19 is all about. And Canada is going to be arguing hard to see that stayed in NAFTA. The I, U.S. actually sort of wants it out. And I wonder if that's going to be like the big sticking point between Canada and the United States that we're seeing, you know, the federal government going very, very, very hard on this particular issue there. And uh, I don't know if they're willing to walk away and just let uh, NAFTA wither and die if they don't have that dispute mechanism. But it's turning into kind of one of those wedge issues that I wasn't necessarily expecting just maybe four or five months ago. No. And I mean, there are so many things that could be wedge issues, right? It seems a little interesting that it would be this. It's not uncommon to have a dispute resolution mechanism. It's actually useful in a lot of times to sort of help states get along and figure out business issues. It helps businesses feel as though they can set up a shop in another country and have some sort of protections to fall on. 
So I uh, I don't know what's going to end up with that, but that's certainly something Canada does not want to see go. Uh, other things too, advocating for increased labor mobility, specifically when it comes to professionals. Uh, it wasn't stated explicitly, but I have to think this will also apply to say some big industries like tech here in Canada. Well, also think about it with CETA going into effect, we're, we're also going to get more labor mobi- mobility between Canada and Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also we also experienced this with NAFTA already, but I. I, I do wonder how they're going to be treating this uh, since it's like a multilateral treaty between Mexico, Canada, and the United States. We see the U.S. clamping down hard with regards to immigration. I I really wonder about the future about uh, labor m- mobility between these three countries just based on what this NAFTA nego- renegotiation is going to be like. That's a really good point because, you know, the – for all intents and purposes, there's been a lot of talk about how in the U.S.'s uh, site is really Mexico and they're looking south of the border. For us, of course, this is really going to determine our trading relationship with the states. And because all three countries are roped into this, the U.S. might have very different ideas about what labor mobility looks like with Mexico versus Canada. So I don't know if you see a two-tiered system in place or whether all three countries are simply going to have to negotiate to come up with something that's somewhat satisfactory to all three. And, and it may just be that Canada comes around um, and ministry develops a immigration program. We're, we're already seeing that right now, but develops an immigration program that can target um, say a lot of the highly skilled workers that it's aiming to get right now. Uh, we see that with a global skills strategy that it was announced, or I guess it went into effect in June. So there could be kind of these boutique sort of programs targeting specific, you know, workers or classes of workers. But I like I don't know what the future holds. I don't know either. Some other things we have uh, Canada looking to see greater protections for environmental rights. I already mentioned labor, a new chapter on gender rights and one uh, focused around the rights and protections for indigenous peoples and also looking to preserve uh, exemptions for uh, Canadian culture when it comes to certain things, as well as supply management. So that Mm. also relates to dairy here in Canada, which has been a sticking point in uh, conversations leading up to the renegotiation. So we'll see. There's going to be lots to talk about in the weeks ahead. Also worth noting, you missed it. Uber's actually in BC, Tyler. Right, right. <laughs> so they say. Well, so they say. They, uh, we're getting a physical presence, but yeah. maybe not in the way that people hope, right? No, they're not actually offering rides. They're mapping, though, routes that drivers could take, the best routes to take, the best pickup and drop-off points, etc. Uber says this helps them calculate their estimated time arrivals. It allows them to be really efficient and sort of helps them beat out the competition, so to speak. Uber also very optimistic that, of course, their ride-hailing service is going to be allowed to operate in BC. But at this stage, it's sort of unclear when that might happen. Of course, the BC Liberals promised during their election campaign to have some sort of legislation in place that would see a company like Uber operate in BC by the end of December. But there isn't a deadline from the NDP government. And frankly, they have a lot on their plate. I don't know if this is a priority. No. And the other thing is, I I believe, I I could be wrong, but I believe that uh, Michael Fassbender, who is uh, not Michael Fassbender, (laughs) Peter Fassbender, uh, who uh, was previously uh, kind of handling that portfolio, he said that they may have even been too ambitious during the election campaign uh, with regards to that December target. So I don't even think the liberals, uh, if they were able to retain power, 
if they would have been going forward with that December promise of getting uh, these ride-hailing services uh, here in British Columbia. I think that's a fair point. And the NDP, they've made it clear that they do support seeing ride-hailing services in BC, but they'd want new regulations in place and they'd want to make sure that they're fair. So to me, that means having some conversations now that they're in power, you know, taking a peek behind the hood of the car, so to speak, and figuring out what actually might be best in this situation. But I mean, we've touched on this in the last two podcast episodes, but uh, there's the review of Site C underway. We're going to get a final report in roughly 12 weeks. The NDP also seeking intervener status on the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Uh, we have their first budget coming up, their first sitting as government. So there's going to be a lot going on in the next few months. I haven't heard or seen anywhere that they're will be something that sees Uber come to BC by December. So we'll have to keep our eyes on that one. Yeah. I'm like, I know <laughs> people want to see it. It's just such a different way than what Uber is say used to. They're used to going into a market, um, introducing their services, uh, regulations be damned and mm-hmm. the regulations catch up to them or, or city bylaws or state laws or what have you. This is a situation where they've not been able to get a hold in the uh, Vancouver market, at least. You know, um, we've had uh, city hall officials clamp down immediately. And so we're going to see a situation where it's the regulations come first and Uber, Lyft, what have you, they're going to have to work within those regulations, which is very different from what they're used to in other markets. Very true. The same could probably be said for a company like Airbnb also pushed their way into this market. In the case of Vancouver, they're here and now the city with Airbnb still operating, trying to figure out the best way to maybe regulate or mitigate impacts from that service. Yeah, tell you what, Haley, I was on vacation the last few weeks, did get to use Lyft in uh, one of the cities I visited. Um, only complaint is I, I found myself making a lot of awkward small talk, um, more so than I do in taxis. So Interesting. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know what to do. I, I just feel guilty like not I don't know what the difference is between like uh, a taxi and, and like a, a lift, like ride hailing service. Because maybe it's, somebody's in like just doing it as a side gig as opposed to a full time thing. But so I feel like I have to say something or like maybe feels a little more casual because you're not in yeah, a bright yellow car. You're exactly, in someone's yeah. own it's car. It's not as official. <laughs> yeah, so, it's like a friend of a friend sort of giving you a ride. You feel compelled yeah. to chat with them. Yeah, but I mean the, those those are some awkward conversations you know that I had about. Oh, yeah, the weather here. Yeah, you got it. It's kind of, yeah. <laughs> I will say this. You know, a lot of times, if uh, at least any time I've been in a cab or taxi, the small talk has been pretty good. And I mean, this is what someone does for their full-time gig, presumably. So they're maybe a little more experienced in the art of conversation as opposed to someone who, you know, drives a car for Uber a couple days a week. Maybe it's just you that's great at small talk and I'm <laughs> horrible at it. And that's why it was so awkward. I always feel compelled to speak. So I think that keeps the conversation going, especially if I'm the only one in the cab aside from the driver. Right. There you go. All right. Our final story I want to touch on uh, out this week is new data from Terranet. It's their Terranet National Bank Composite House Price Index. It combines the weighted home price averages from 11 metropolitan areas, specifically looking at single family homes and resales of those homes. Overall, month to month, we're seeing a 2% rise. Year over year, though, it's up by around 14%, 14.2 for all of Canada. And within that, Toronto, uh, as is maybe expected, is driving that market. Year over year, its index shot up by 28%, much higher than what we're seeing here in BC, although we are seeing some growth when it comes to Vancouver and Victoria. Vancouver, 8.6% year over year. 
an increase and for Victoria, 16.3. So their index mm. went up by almost double the amount it went up in Vancouver. So we are seeing prices go up. Uh, one of the interesting points made in the report, though, especially when it comes to Toronto, which the Ontario government has brought in some measures recently paralleling what happened in BC, I guess about a year ago, and they are noticing some weakness in the market. So questions about whether it's about to cool, whether it's starting to cool, lots of reports out on that one. Yeah, I, I would emphasize to listeners, I mean, the Terranet data is kind of what I prefer looking at just uh, because the resale data, you, I think you get a more accurate um, view of what's going on in the markets, uh, less prone to maybe uh, some of the hyperbole that goes on that maybe you hear about. So I uh, definitely keep your uh, eyes on this Terranet stuff. And it is kind of, you know, well, no surprise, Toronto yeah. real estate's doing well there. Yeah, it is a, it's a three-month rolling average, too. So that means it sort of yeah. uh, guards against any spikes or trends you see month to month. Uh, Vancouver, Victoria, Toronto, Montreal, um, Hamilton, and Ottawa, Gatineau, they all hit record highs for their uh, their index. So seeing a lot of gains made, it's certainly not cooling off in the way maybe people thought it would about a year ago, especially in B.C. That's it for our business headlines. After the break, we're going to talk to Les Trackman, CEO of the Trackman Group. He's going to weigh in on how CEOs can replace a founding CEO at a company in a way that's smooth and graceful. This podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax, and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. Now, if you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, and if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600. That's 604-714-3600. Or you can check them out online at manningelliot.ca. Well, now it's time to feature an interview that aired on BIV's show on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. It's a radio show that airs Monday through Friday, 9 to 10 a.m. This is with Les Trackman. He's the CEO of the Trackman Group and the author of Don't F It Up, How Founders and Their Successors Can Avoid the Clichés That Inhibit Growth. We talk about former Uber CEO Travis Kalanick and compare him to maybe some more graceful other controversial transitions from founding CEOs to operating chief executives. Have a listen. Welcome back to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We are the daily business news program from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm your host, Haley Wooden. Sometimes it's graceful, often it isn't. When a founder or prominent CEO steps away from a company, there can be complications, consequences, and frankly, costs. For example, last week, venture firm Benchmark actually filed a lawsuit against Uber founder and former CEO Travis Kalanick in an effort to oust Kalanick from the company's board. Joining me to have a look at this dynamic a little bit further is Les Trackman, CEO at the Trackman Group. He's also the author of the newly released book, Don't F It Up, How Founders and Their Successors Can Avoid the Clichés That Inhibit Growth. Thanks for joining me, Les. My pleasure, Haley. As far as cliched founder exits go, how would you rate the situation uh, regarding Travis Kalanick and Uber? Uh, it's not unique, 
but, but I would say that, that this is one of those situations where a founder has uh, decided that perhaps his role is more important than the wealth of his shareholders, of which uh, billions have been invested. And you say, unfortunately, it's not unique. This one might be a little bit extreme. It's obviously going to the courts and not all situations like this do go to the courts. Why does this happen? Is it because founders are having to face the fact that they're giving up their baby, the company they created? Well, uh, yeah, I think that a lot of it has to do with that. So founders are very possessive of their babies, as you might imagine. Uh, it takes a lot to create a great company. It took a lot to create Uber. Uh, this is not something for the weak of, of heart. Um, so uh, CalLink did a great job in getting the company to where it is today. It's a question, though, of whether there's a separation between the personality of the founder and the personality of the company. So is it Kalanick's company or is it a company that Kalanick founded? And that distinction is a very important one to draw. Yeah. And, and how do you draw it? Because in some cases, it really does seem like a brand is inextricably tied to the brand of the founder. Yeah, and I think this is a board of directors issue. And I think what you're seeing right now with this lawsuit that has been filed is the board trying to undo something that perhaps they could have gotten a handle on earlier on. So what you've got here is, is what I would call the traditional uh, difference between being rich or being king. And with founders, boards are well advised to ensure that they understand whether a founder is trying to get rich and help the investors get rich, or whether the founder uh, is more focused on being king, being in charge. And in this case, I'm guessing because there was so much heat around investors wanting to get into Uber, they either forgot or they neglected to understand that distinction. And I think they let it foster and I think they let it fester as well. And that's what you've got today. Mm -hmm. A lot of emotions tied to this one, a lot at stake too, when we're talking about shareholder interests and the interests of major investors. What about in situations where it hasn't been this controversial, but you do have a CEO or a, a founding CEO step away from a company? How does a board or the successor sort of square that and replace someone who has been integral to the foundation and success of a company? Well, there, there's a very important process that someone needs to go through, and whether that's the board, the investors, or the founder themselves, um, uh, going through a process and making sure that you're thoughtful about this as far in advance as you can is probably well warranted. So you've got a situation right now, at least second time around with Starbucks, where they brought in uh, a new CEO, Kevin Johnson, not so new anymore, but it was very intentionally done. Johnson was brought on well before he took over the role of CEO, uh, and he was um, given a long runway. And uh, the CEO, the board, the investors could see him perform during that time, and that gave them a much bigger comfort level about uh, what he'd be like once he became CEO. Doing things like that, being thoughtful about the process, well in advance of it happening is really something that we recommend. What's interesting in the case of Starbucks is when Howard Schultz announced that he would be stepping away from CEO, shares dropped in Starbucks, even though they had a successor named, even though they had clearly thought about this. And even though Schultz wasn't stepping away entirely, he was still going to remain on with the company in some capacity. So something like that inevitable? 
it's inevitable when you have a big personality running a company like that. If you remember, Schultz stepped away once before and it didn't work out so well. So the, mm-hmm. the investors were probably remembering that and saying, okay, maybe this isn't going to go well. But I think this is distinctly different this time. I think this was a uh, lessons learned and a much more thoughtful progression. And so I think you will find that although Schultz is a big personality, that Kevin Johnson's up for the task. So Starbucks, they got it right the second time around. What happens, say, a company like Uber or a company that has ousted a CEO, there's been a resignation, there's some heat and controversy. How do they try and smooth over and achieve as smooth a transition as possible uh, amid some controversy? Well, one of the things which they're trying to do now is make sure that there's a very clear separation between the founder, former CEO, and the company. So in the case of Uber, no matter what happened, you would have Kalanick as a director, as a member of the board, even after resigning as CEO. And that's the situation that you're in today. The problem with that, of course, especially when you have a situation where it's an ouster, not a voluntary termination or a voluntary withdrawal, is that that person who sits on the board now is effectively the boss of the new CEO, of the successor. And I've never seen a situation ever in my entire life where somebody who was the founder and former CEO applauds their successor and says, yes, change all the things I did and I'm really happy about that. Um, so it doesn't happen. So what you have is a, you have a, a former CEO founder sitting on the board and taking pot shots typically at their successor. And that's never a good situation. No, it's so not helpful. Se- <laughs> it's not helpful. So separation and a complete separation is probably what you want. I'm speaking to Les Trackman. He is the CEO at the Trackman Group and the author of Don't F It Up, How Founders and Their Successors Can Avoid the Clichés That Inhibit Growth. How different are the, the situations when you have a, a company that's doing really, really well? There hasn't been controversy. Numbers are going up. That's great for them. How key is it to have sort of a a former CEO support an incoming CEO compared to a situation where a company maybe things haven't been going well and they need to pivot a little bit? Yeah, so it's it's actually harder for the successor, I believe, to come into a situation where everything's going well uh, because that successor likely has some ideas about what they'd like to do. And uh, if things are going well, they are risking it. In fact, that's where the title of my book came from, from a CEO that I took over for in a company that was doing well. And he said, do whatever you want, but don't F it up. Um, so the pressure was on to not rock the boat, not take risks that, that, that are undue. Um, but at the same point, if you're, a, if you're a good CEO, if you're a good successor, you probably have some ideas about what you want to do. And when you make changes, you are taking risks. And in fact, every founder took risks to start their own company. So you kind of want that, but it becomes a a little tricky process. Well, and you you mentioned that experience where you've taken over for a founder, and you've done this actually at six founder-led organizations where you've come on board as a new CEO. What's that like, and how do you leave your mark if it's in a situation where those companies have already seen some success? Well, hopefully you leave a positive mark wherever you were. Yeah. So you can leave your mark in a lot of different ways. And probably some of the founders I've worked for think I have. Um, but the, the way you go about it is you try to leverage the founder and the knowledge that the founder has. And in fact, the culture that the founder has created in every way that you can. So the very best situation that I had, 
I worked with a founder who happened to be a very mature individual in terms of the transition. He was thoughtful about how he brought me in. He was thoughtful about a uh, runway of, of making me the CEO. And he stuck around but stayed out of the way. And that's something that, that's really, really important to a successor is if you're going to make your mark, it's got to be your mark, not sort of a, an asterisk that you put on your name uh, that you helped somebody else do that. So I call the process, and I call it very affectionately, seagulling. Um, and that's the former CEO, founder. If they're going to stick around, what you try to advise them to do is not seagull, which is swoop in leave a gooey gift and then swoop out and, and have your successor have to clean that up. That sounds like good advice. No one wants a gooey gift. Uh, I have to ask, we've been sort of speaking sort of with an eye to what a transition between leadership means for investors, for the bottom line. What about for staff and the culture and you're coming in and if you're replacing a founder who set up that culture, that, that's got to be a little bit of a, a challenging task. It, it is a challenging task. The, the, the staff, and there's, there's a lot of different types of people in any organization. And in an organization run by a founder, it's not surprising that you're going to find both very good people and very bad people. Um, and it, it is the, the, the role of the successor to be as objective as he or she can when they take over and to make sure that they take advantage and leverage as many good people as you possibly can. And in fact, if you're going to make an error, you err on the side of keeping people rather than getting rid of people. But if there are people who have been hiding or who have been there because of the loyalty that they, that they formerly expressed to the founder, but they're not up to the task uh, that the company requires at this point, you really have to be a, as objective as you can with them. And you probably need to terminate the ones that are not participating anymore. Now, you should be as fair as you possibly can to those people. Hopefully, they have some stock options from joining early, and so they can cash out on their way and not feel bad financially. But you, you have to be sensitive to that whole situation because that culture and the rock of that culture when you take over as a successor is really a, an important part of whether you'll be successful or not. So the bottom line here, Les, despite some high-profile examples of the opposite or the way not to do things, you actually can see a fairly successful transition between a founder and a new CEO as long as you, you work at it. Yes, and, and that's the key, right? So you have to work at it. You have to think about it in advance. It's inevitable. If a company is going to be successful, even if it's a family company, there will be a succession at some point if the company is lucky enough to have that, if the company is lucky enough to be that successful. So you should think about that and you should plan for it in advance. And if you do, then you absolutely can be successful in doing that. What does it do to a brand, by the way, if you have a family-run company that, as we've seen happen in the past, finally goes outside of the company to a point a successor. Yes, I, I actually sit on the board of a company that has done just that, and, and that one is a uh, is a is a little bit more tricky situation than most because you likely have family members who are stakeholders or shareholders, um, and they are uh, they think differently. They think more about the legacy, perhaps that the founder leaves, which is part of their family heritage, and so it takes a special person to come in as a CEO of a family company when they're not a family member, and they have to be uber sensitive, to use that word again, uh, to the culture that they're, uh, that, that they're adopting. I think it's fair to say, too, a lot of times you will see people appointed who are a part of the company family. They've been at the company for decades. It's not as though they're just hopping from another company into a new one. 
I, I think that's true, um, and, and it's best if somebody's been there for a while. On the company that I sit on the board, the new CEO, who is a non-family member, actually worked at the company for almost 10 years for one of the family members. And so when he got appointed CEO, he was almost considered family. In mm-hmm. fact, they treated him as family, which was great, made him very successful. That's great. Les, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with our audience. Thank you, Haley. That's Les Trackman. He is the CEO at the Trackman Group and the author of the new book, Don't F It Up, How Founders and Their Successors Can Avoid the Clichés That Inhibit Growth. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Haley Wooden. Well, that was Les Trackman. He is the chief executive officer at the Trackman Group and the author of Don't F It Up, How Founders and Their Successors can avoid the cliches that inhibit growth. Uh, as you heard, Tyler, a, a very different story, say, between the Uber C- former Uber CEO, Travis Kalanick, and Howard Schultz, for example, <laughs> who were they, you know, he exited the first time and it didn't go well, but, you know, his more recent uh, step back from the chief executive officer position, you can tell that Starbucks, they put a lot of time and thought and effort into grooming his successor. Well, exactly. I mean, he had been there for years, so... I don't know. I, I have to believe, though, uh, whatever happens with Uber, it, it, I'll be there eating popcorn. And I always like those interviews <laughs> where they, where you do get to pick apart uh, and kind of pull back uh, the curtain when it comes to some big mistakes going on in business. Yeah, some very big mistakes, yeah. for sure. Well, hey, that's it for our podcast this week. This podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. You can find past podcasts as well as past radio shows, more business news over at BIV.com. That's where you can connect with both of us. We also have our podcasts up on iTunes. And if you give us a rating, please feel free to do that. It helps other people find our show as well. Now, Tyler, if anyone wants to connect with you, where can they go? Hey, you can find me on social media. Twitter's the best place. I'm at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. And I am also on Twitter, Instagram. Feel free to connect at Haley Wooden. That's it for our show this week. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening.